that's a mighty fine-looking horse. Is that your horse? Paved sidewalks and streets and tall buildings, stores on every corner, and, and businesses where music was coming out. It was hustling and bustling. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Stories to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always such a pleasure for me to be with you and to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We're going to bring you some great stuff today, and we want to remind you right off the top here that you can visit us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed, and there you'll find an archive filled with episodes of the show that are themselves filled with all kinds of stories. Or if you've only got a few minutes, you can go there to the website and find what we call Appleseed Extras, mini episodes of the show, really. Just a single story long, a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. In fact, if you go there today, you'll find a terrific story called Chili's Con Cafe from the terrific story Rick Huddle. And uh, today we're going to hear all kinds of great stuff. You know, every now and then someone comes along who redefines what we think is possible. One of those people is Bessie Coleman, the first African-American woman and first Native American to obtain a pilot's license. She was also the first black person to get an international pilot's license, and she did all of this in the 1920s. She's got a list of honors as long as your arm, as well as the popular names Brave Bessie and Queen Bess. And she's long gone now, long since passed away, but her legacy lives on, and her story will be told to you today by the wonderful storyteller Charlotte Blake Alston. You're going to want to listen for that a little later in the hour, but first we've got a story from the wonderful Texas storyteller Donna Ingham. It's the story of her fascination with Roy Rogers when she was a kid. In fact, the story is called Waiting for Roy, a tale you'll enjoy here on The Appleseed. Yes, indeed. Happy trails to you. Those of us of a certain age can sing that song all the way through, I figure. The Texan wrote it, you know. Francis Octavius Smith, born in Valley, Texas. We know her as Day Elevens, but hers isn't the story I want to tell. What I want to tell you is my mama did let her little girl grow up to love cowboys, starting with my daddy who thought he was the last great cowboy of the Western world. But by the time I got into elementary school, I was mostly enamored of the movie cowboys, especially the king of the cowboys, Roy Rogers. Oh, I was a big fan. I knew all about him. I listened to his radio show. That was way back before he had a television show. And I read his adventure books and listened to his songs on those old... 78 RPM records. I went down to the Rex Theater there in Amarillo, Texas, where we lived every Saturday afternoon that one of his movies was the matinee feature. Later, I would watch his television show and learn that theme song, Happy Trails. But I didn't have his autograph. At least, not yet. When I was about nine, though, I guess, and in the third grade, I saw my chance. 
When I heard that Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, his wife and frequent co-star, were coming to Amarillo to appear at the nearby annual Boys Ranch Rodeo on Labor Day weekend. Now, nearly everyone who came to Amarillo in those days stayed at the Herring Hotel downtown, and I figured that's where Roy and Dale would stay, too. So on the afternoon of the day the rodeo was supposed to start, I called the hotel just to check. The desk clerk said, Yes, Roy Rogers is registered here. Would you like for me to ring his room? I said, Yes, sir, I guess so. And he did. I was really glad when Roy didn't answer, though, because I don't know what I'd have said if he did. When my mother got home from work at the H&Y drugstore, I told her it was really, really important for me to go down to the Herring Hotel and get Roy Rogers' autograph. I'd figured out, see, that it would be a whole lot easier to get Roy's autograph at the hotel than it would be at the rodeo, what with the crowds of people and all. And besides, I knew my mother would be tired after working all day and wouldn't want to go to the rodeo anyway. My mother said, okay. She would take me down to the herring and drop me off, and I could call her when I got the autograph so she could come back and pick me up. I don't think most parents would do that these days, take a third grader to a downtown hotel, drop her off, and say, call me when you're done and I'll come pick you up. But those must have been much more innocent times back then because neither she nor I saw a single thing wrong with our doing it that way. Before I got in the car, though, I had to get all dressed up in my best western finery. And I don't mean just blue jeans and a western shirt, either. No, sir. I had a real western suit my daddy had given me for my birthday or Christmas, I forget which. It had tan gabardine pants with creases down the front and a short gabardine jacket with those little pointy designs off the shoulders and in the middle of the back. I wore a white western shirt with mother-of-pearl snaps and a bolo tie with a real turquoise on the slide. I had a tulle leather belt with a horse's head on the silver-plated buckle and boots, of course. Now, my boots were not quite as pointy-toed nor as high-topped as I might have liked, but that didn't matter because my daddy said, no real cowboy, Roy Rogers notwithstanding, ever wore his pants legs down inside his boots. My hat had a stampede string on it, but I tucked that up inside because for once in Amarillo, Texas, the wind wasn't blowing. And I wasn't riding my horse to town after all. I wish I was, but I wasn't. I did have a horse. In fact, I was taking a picture of my horse with me. That's what I was going to have Roy Rogers sign my horse's name was Cutie Pie, but of late I had started calling her Lady after Roy Rogers' horse before he got Trigger. Now, I bet a lot of you didn't even know he had a horse before he got Trigger, but he did. Like I say, I know all about him. See, I had it all figured out. When I handed him that picture, Roy would look at it and say something like, My, that's a mighty fine-looking horse. Is that your horse? And I'd say, yes, sir, and her name's Lady, just like your horse before you got Trigger. And she's a sorrel, too, kind of that red color, just like your lady. And he'd say, 
Why, she sure is, or something like that, and the conversation would just go on from there. I hadn't quite worked the rest of it out in my head, but I knew it went on. Finally, I strapped on my guns, two of them. When we played cowboys in my neighborhood, I always got to be Roy Rogers because I had two guns and two holsters. My friend Janelle had only one gun and one holster, so we made her be Jean Autry. Since my guns were just for show on this trip, though, I unloaded them. I flipped up the side of the cartridge chamber there and very carefully removed the roll of caps, the little circles of gunpowder showing through that red paper tape, put them back in their box. When we got to the Herring Hotel, my mother let me out and drove off. I walked into that grand old lobby with its great high ceilings and its marble floors and finally stationed myself by the big fountain in the middle of the lobby. The water splashed over into a goldfish pond. I stood there where I could watch the goldfish, but I also stood facing the elevators so I could watch for Roy and Dale and head them off when they came down. There were some men there in the lobby, probably there for a convention or something, and they just were hanging around waiting for supper, I guess. I didn't pay much attention to them, but they must have been watching me while I was watching the goldfish and the elevator. It's a good thing, too, because when Roy and Dale finally did come down and step off the elevator into the lobby, I could not move. I was just frozen, rooted in place, and I could not speak. Oh, my mind was working, and I knew my chance was slipping away, slipping away as Roy and Dale began walking across the lobby toward the big revolving door in the front. They seemed to be moving in slow motion, larger than life, as if they were still up on the silver screen, and I could not move. Then one of the convention men must have figured out what was going on because he hollered, Hey, Roy, I think this little kid has been waiting on you. And Roy stopped just before he got to the revolving door. Then I was moving, prodded, I think, or maybe pushed by the convention man. And it seemed to me as if I were moving in slow motion as I walked across the lobby and finally stood in front of Roy Rogers. I handed up the picture of my horse. And from there, everything speeded up. He took the picture, signed Roy Rogers and Trigger, handed it back to me, and then he and Dale were gone. It happened that fast. No questions, no conversation, no anything. I turned and walked to the big wooden telephone booze at the back of the lobby and dialed my mother. You can come get me now, I said. I got it. Then I went over to stand by the goldfish pond again, but I didn't watch the fish, and I had no reason to watch the elevators anymore. I turned and looked at the convention man. He smiled but I don't think I smiled back. I was still trying to figure out why, although I had the autograph, 
I wasn't happier about it. And I think now that was my first real moment of epiphany, that moment when I began to realize the vast difference between what we expect to happen and what really happens, between illusion and reality. Now, don't get me wrong. I got a lot of mileage out of that autograph for show and tell. And I stayed a Roy Rogers fan for a long time until at some point I switched my allegiance to Doris Day. But you know, I never did call my horse Lady after that. She was always just cutie pie. And it remained for us, for her and for me, to blaze our own happy trails. Waiting for Roy, a story that may call to mind any opportunity you may have had to meet your hero. That's a story worth telling if you've got it. You can tell it to the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. Of course, you can send it to us at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. Lots more to come on today's episode of The Appleseed. Stick around for a story from Charlotte Blake Alston, as well as an entry in the Radio Family Journal and more. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. I love that story we heard a moment ago. If you're just joining us, we heard Waiting for Roy, a story by Donna Ingham about meeting her hero, Roy Rogers. There's a lot more coming up on today's episode of The Appleseed. A little later, we'll hear from Charlotte Blake Alston, the story of Bessie Coleman, Queen Bess, or Brave Bessie, they called her. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be a spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people that you love, here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's a memory of, well, of how we came to own the Harry Potter books at my house. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. I remember the first time I heard someone recommend the Harry Potter books. In those days, there were only two of them. I was visiting the very wonderful Treehouse Children's Museum in Ogden, Utah, and a copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone lay on top of the desk of Lynn Goodwin, the museum director. And another one of the museum's staff, an old friend of mine named Wes Whitby, asked me if I'd read Harry Potter yet. Well, I hadn't even heard of it. Emily, Wes's wife, said, you should read it. It's fun. It's full of magic and full of the difficulties of being at school, except it's a magic school. This was before the books took over the publishing world, before they were made into films, before everyone in the world had read them. It was still largely a pre-Harry world. I'll have to read it, I said, and then promptly didn't. I didn't even think about it again until my dad came for a visit to my house and while he was visiting, sat down on the couch to read Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. By now there were three books. These books are everywhere, I began to think. And that week, I picked one up and began to read it aloud to my four-year-old. 
We were both hooked pretty quickly. We finished the first book in no time, and the day following, we opened the front door in the morning to find an owl on the porch. It was a white stuffed animal owl, a plush toy, and it sat atop a letter in an envelope and also a book. The letter was addressed to my four-year-old, and it congratulated him on finishing the first Harry Potter book and asked that we accept the next book delivered by the bird with compliments. We were to leave this stuffed animal owl on the porch that night, but the book was ours. Well, a book delivered by Magical Owl was just the kind of thing that, well, that a parent might do to keep a kid interested in reading. But it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I hadn't bought the book or placed the owl on the porch or written the letter. I had done none of those things. I looked at the boy's mom. She hadn't done it either. It was a mystery. We read quickly through Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and on the morning after we finished the book... We opened the front door to find that the owl was back, and in her plush talons, another letter and another book, too. The letter said much the same thing as the previous letter had said, addressed to my four-year-old. It congratulated him on finishing the second book and hoped we would accept the third with compliments. And forward we went. My four-year-old turned five, and then six. The reading aloud continued. And at the completion of each book, the owl would return with the next book. It was an experience, but it was an experience right out of a Harry Potter book. Well, neither the boy's mother nor I were responsible for the continued visits from the mysterious owl. We did find out pretty quickly who it was, I must say, though we were able to keep it from the little one. It turned out to be Tammy Allerton, a friend of ours, someone we hung out with all the time, lived in the neighborhood. She had herself loved the books and got excited about creating a magical experience for a new Harry Potter reader. She, Tammy, had crept through the dark of the neighborhood with an owl and a book under her arm. She she had arranged them neatly and magically on our front porch. And because my kids and Tammy's kids were friends, Tammy was among the first people who got to hear about the magical visits from my son, who loved to tell her about them. They would talk together about the books, my son never suspecting that his conversation partner was actually his magical benefactor. And I guess it worked. My son continued to relish our read-alouds. We branched out to The Hobbit and Holes, and later on, Al Capone Does My Shirts, and even the very excellent The Search for Lincoln's Killer, the young people's version of James Swanson's book Manhunt, about the assassination of the 16th president and the hunt for John Wilkes Booth. When my son got married, it was a book I gave him as a wedding gift. So, yeah, I guess it worked. A little actual magic with his reading of Harry Potter worked wonders. I gotta say that books themselves are their own kind of magic, of course. You don't need a surprise on the front porch for every book you read. The family bookshelf is its own kind of Hogwarts. That said, while the magic of books operates independent of special delivery by plush owls, those magical book deliveries from secret Tammy sure were memorable. In the getting my son to love reading scheme of things, they didn't hurt a bit. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, when it comes to favorite books, sometimes the story of how you came to own the book is as fun to remember as the book itself. Up next, 
How about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we read, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course, the tales that get passed from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do here on The Appleseed with friends. And I'm pleased to be joined by a longtime friend of the show, Anthony Bircher, joining us from his home in Virginia. Anthony, such a pleasure to have you with me greetings good to be with you as well and so i i too am fascinated where stories come from where do these yeah. things originate and i figured this there's this one story i tell it actually originates in two different places and i watched i watched both of them on television i'm a kid of the 60s and so we had those horror movies those black and white horror movies with frankenstein and dracula and wolfman and mummy and creature from the black lagoon sure. i loved all those guys and i figured it out that as a kid heading into puberty you identify with those monsters, especially Wolfman, because you've got hair just sprouting out from places you didn't expect. <laughs> your voice is crazy. You can't talk anymore. You can't control your temper. Oh, you're definitely the Wolfman when you're heading through puberty. And so I loved all those monsters. Now, in my house, there was another TV show we loved. We, my dad rarely sat down and watched TV, but he would sit down and watch Hee Haw. And, <laughs> oh, people consider that thing so lowbrow and awful. Oh, our family loved it. Now, I want to, folks, give it another chance because there are some of the greatest bluegrass and, and country musicians that come through there. They had the best of the best on that show. They also if, you have, the if you're not familiar with Hee Haw, Hee Haw was this wonderful variety music show full of jokes, full of music, full of guests, and full, as you say, of terrific country and bluegrass music uh, on every week. We all watched it. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Plus, now here's why storytellers should watch they actually had storytellers on that show from time to time. My favorite, Archie Campbell, he was the barber. And as, as he cut hair, he would tell stories. And from him, I heard the very first examples of Lackward's language or Spoonerisms. From Archie Campbell, I heard uh, the Pete Little Thrigs and Woe Snight and Rendicella. And I said, yeah, that's for me. It's called whipping your flirts. It's when you exchange <laughs> syllables as you're talking. Long time ago, 1800s, there was this Reverend Spooner who did that. All right. And so yeah. it's named after him, Reverend Spooner. <laughs> but one day, I, I now have a Halloween show coming up. I've got me and a bunch of uh, storytellers were on the, on, on the, you know, on the list. And yeah. I was like, I want to do something different. And so I remembered these two things, hee-haw and monsters. Yeah. And then it hit me, stank and frying. <laughs> See, a tongue long ago, there was this sad scientist. His name was Dr. Stankenfrein. And he actually believed he could bring the lead back to dive. He did. Nate at light, he'd go out to the temissary, dig up the bed dotties, but he could never bring the lead back to dive. So he, he got an idea. He would take different potty darts. He would take maybe your kiver and your lid knees, your lauder, your hungs, or your brummick or your stain, and sew up his own monster. And so, but now it gets confusing because you have Dr. Stankenfrein and Monster Stankenfrein. But Monster Stankenfrein was all sewn together. But then Dr. Stankenfrein did something strange. Went to town. He went down to the Dome Hippo, bought two battle molts, took the two battle molts and stuck them in the monster's mech. And he attached this wire out the window up the castle to this lightning rod and waited for a thunderstorm. 
And all of a sudden, the blim was woeing, and then the lightning was lashing. It was a thunderstorm, and the, all of a sudden, pff, that lightning hit that, that lightning rod down through the wire all the way to the monster's mech, and murr, murr, he came to life. Uh, Dr. Dr. Sankofan was so upset, he, for, he forgot to connect the cocoa boards. So now all the monster could say was murr, murr. Oh, but he was mean. He broke loose, so mean as a snattle rake, really. He broke loose, and if you had in town a pice nuppy, he'd kick up that, he'd pick up that pice nuppy and then just kick it like a bootfall. He would. He was mean. And if he had a garden with some nice flowers, he'd flump your stowers. He had these fig beads. He'd flump your stowers, your dargenias, tapunias, chromanthosums. He, he would just smash them all. And they'd at light. He'd sneak up your house, and he would ding your war bell. He would he'd ding your war bell, just run off laughing, murmur. Finally, the adults did what adults do when there's trouble. Yeah, they mad a heating. They mad a heating, and they cormed a formidity, and they played a man. And the plan they made was they were going to mace that chonster. They were going to mace that. They went home. They got their shovels and their fitch porks and their taming florches. And they decided that they maced that chonster all the way out of Vanseltrania, across Europe, across the Arctic, down through Canada, all the way to the state of Falicornia. Chased them all the way to San Cranfrisco. And friends, I'm happy to report there in San Cranfrisco, Monster Stank in front, uh, he totally fit in. It was his place. Nobody paid him any attention, and he lived there laply ever after. <laughs> there you go. And so I don't really, I don't often do them. I, you know, like if I have a little small pause on a concert or you know, as filler, basically. Yeah. If you did an entire show with them, it would be, be awful, truly. But one day I, I was in a retirement home and I started with a spoonerism story. It's a little short thing. It's probably the P. Little Thriggs. And then this woman at the very end of it, she stood up and she said, is it all going to be like this? <laughs> I was so tempted to say, yes, ma'am. But yeah. <laughs> I said, no, ma'am, that's our only one of those. <laughs> it's not for everybody. You know, I remember the first time I read the actual book, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I, did I well. had the flu. And uh, I was looking for something to just occupy me while I felt awful. And I picked up that book and read it all in one sitting. Wow. And uh, and boy, it remains a favorite. It's sure fun to hear it in that way from Anthony Bircher. <laughs> Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here on The Appleseed. Sam, it's truly been my pleasure. All right, take care. <laughs> you as well. Visit Anthony Bircher online at anthonybircher.com. And of course, you can hear Anthony Bircher's work on The Appleseed. You can find episodes of The Appleseed to listen to on demand anytime you like. Take them on your mobile device at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google The Appleseed Podcast for something new just about every day on The Appleseed. My pleasure to chat with Anthony Bircher, and there's a lot more coming up right here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on The Appleseed today. 
A moment ago, you heard a conversation with the storyteller Anthony Bircher. Always a pleasure to chat with Anthony about one thing or another. And, of course, you heard an entry in the Radio Family Journal about how the Harry Potter books came to live at my house and be enjoyed by me and by my kids. At the top of the hour, Waiting for Roy, a story told for you by Donna Ingham about meeting her hero, Roy Rogers. We're going to wrap up today with a story of Bessie Coleman, Brave Bess, they called her, the first African-American woman and the first Native American to obtain a pilot's license. And here to tell us about the story, I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's such a pleasure to have you with me in the studio today. Hi, Sam. I love being here. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about a story by the great storyteller and musician, Mm -hmm. Charlotte Blake Alston. Tell us about this story. Yeah, so this is called The Flying Story, and it's um, about Charlotte Blake Alston's son when he's in college. And he... Um, he's a little directionless, you know, like he like has some things that he likes and he has some things that he's good at, but he's not like just clicking into what needs to be like his thing. Right. That has um, never happened to anybody in the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and um, and he ultimately finds inspiration in the past yeah. through um, a figure that I think can be inspirational to all of us. Yeah. The story is the flying story, and as Alyssa says, it's the story of finding inspiration in the story of someone who has come before. It's a story told for you by Charlotte Blake Alston. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Thank you, and thank you for choosing to come into uh, our set uh, today. In the summers of 1998 and 1999, there's no feminine way to get up on these stools. (laughs) (laughs) My son had uh, summer internships at the Federal Aviation Administration. It had taken my son some time to reach the intersection of, I don't know what I wanna do, with this really ignites my passion. He was uh, what many of us so-called progressive educators refer to as a reluctant reader when he was a kid. He spent uh, every year from first grade through fourth grade in the lower school at the independent school where I taught in sessions with a reading teacher at least once a day doing all kinds of creative and wonderful activities. And still at the end of each year, he would uh, come to me with his standard mantra, I hate reading. He was in summer school, and by the time he got out of high school, uh, he decided to wait a year before going to school. He was always just a a, a kid who stood up for his own principles. He never got in with the cool kids or, you know, the hot kids if they were doing stuff, the popular kids even, if they were doing things that were contrary to his own set of values. So uh, he found himself a job after I started putting one ads on his pillow. And he and his buddy went out and got a job. And um, he worked for uh, two years before he then decided he was gonna start to take some classes at the community college in Philadelphia. Took some courses and then finally at age 21, 
right when I was about to put the footprint in the rear part of his body, he said, I think I'm ready to go to school full time and take the plunge. And off he went. He checked undecided on the course offering section of the application. And uh, he always has had some, a really natural ability in art and in music. But he always said he never wanted to pursue it as a course of study because it would take the joy out of the art. <laughs> so to the college's credit, they really worked to kind of coach those undecided students into a major by the middle of their freshman year or no later than the first semester of their sophomore year. And he actually decided to go in the direction of art. And actually let me know that his first drawing class, oh, it did not take the joy out of drawing. It actually enhanced his ability. Imagine that. He also took a photography course, a nature photography tour course, and that's a, an, an interest that he has, has rekindled recently, actually. He's got a very good eye. <clears throat> but through an informal conversation with an art teacher who said she was dis dismissing class early on a particular day to go and get her pilot's license, he discovered an aviation program that he had overlooked. So he went over to the department, spoke to the head of the department. He got in a shoebox with a propeller on it. And literally and figuratively, the earth moved under his feet. And I've never heard him talk as excitedly about anything. He had a little bit of an obstacle trying to get to that first sample lesson because his car broke down. And it just so happens that my college roommate lived about 45 minutes from the school. And I said, just, it's, it's his godmother. I said, just call her. The worst she can do is say she can't do it. She said she picked up her, her papers from her English class that she was teaching and graded papers. And she said when he got off that airplane, his eyes were as big as saucers. And you could just see the energy coming off of him. Never heard him talk as excitedly about anything in his life. You know, I kept saying, you know, I just, you know, I, I took a flight, I took a sample flight. And I'm thinking, either you fly or you don't. How do you take a sample flight? You know, what do you mean a sample? I flew a katana, a, what, a tuna can? And mother, it's a single engine plane. But that changed really the whole direction of his life. And so fast forward or fast back uh, to the summer internships. Um, by the way, he even got an opportunity to fly in a private plane with the name of the United States of America on it for a trip to Canada, your tax dollars at work. But they're really working to nurture the next generation of uh, people in the aviation field. But he would spend his lunch times at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, DC. And it happens that on the mezzanine level, there is one area where there is a display, which is a tribute to African-American aviators, and he was drawn to a photo of one woman and the caption underneath. And he went to the bookstore and saw that there was a book about this person. And he called me and told me that he read the book in one night. Now, this was my non-reading son. And he said he was going to send it to me. And I thought, well, any book that my, you know, stuck my son's face up into it, I'm interested in seeing that. And it was a story of Bessie Coleman, Aviator uh, by Doris Rich. And as he did, I read the book in one night. And when I was done, I actually had tears on my face. 
And I thought of all that she went through to achieve her dreams, her goals. I thought of all of the people like her who had to endure those same kinds of struggles just to follow their own path. I thought of my father who never talked about his military service and a lot I discovered in papers that were left behind that we took out of our parents' house and in letters that they had saved, my mother had saved, that went back and forth between them when he was in the service. He was one of three African-American men to apply to, be accepted into, and graduate from the Radio Operators Mechanics School for the Army, hello, Air Corps. There was no Air Force back then, in 1943. And he walked around airplanes, checking weather reports and all the kinds of things that pilots needed to be aware of. And one particular letter that was really, really long, and every few paragraphs or so he was writing, you know, I know this is really long, but I want you to know what I've been through. He was sent to a base in, uh, I believe it was in Florida, and he was there with three other men of the same rank, and uh, he was not given a hotel room they were. He was directed to the colored Y, told where to get the bus, got on the bus, sat down, and the bus driver got up and came to him while he was sitting there wearing the uniform of the United States of America and told him that he was not going to move the bus until my father moved to the back. It was dark by the time they got to the area where the colored Y was and then determined from the bus driver that they had actually passed it by about four blocks. He got off the bus and it had begun to rain. It was a downpour and he talked about all the time that he had taken to press his uniform and now it was getting soaking wet. So I found my father's papers, the description of what his job uh, was, and I sent it to my son. He had never seen it. And I just wanted him to know that he was now part of a legacy, that his grandfather was watching over him, and he was going to be fine. Bessie Coleman wanted to fly. Bessie Coleman became the queen of the skies. Bessie Coleman wanted to fly. Bessie Coleman became the queen of the skies. Bessie Coleman was sitting in the White Sox barber shop doing manicures. She had gone to uh, beauty school and learned how to do manicures in Chicago. And she would sit there and listen to the conversations of the men talking about the things that men talk about. Uh, at one point, when her brother actually came in, he had been in the war, he had been overseas, and many of the men who had never been out of the country had those opportunities, and even though it was time of war, there was much about their experiences in countries outside of the United States that they came back in that was really rich. And he began to kind of rag on Bessie and American women and black women in particular because he had seen all of these French women and all the things that they could do. He said they could even fly airplanes. He said, Bessie, you're supposed to be so smart. You can't do anything that those French women can do. And that just started to get underneath Bessie's skin. Putting her down, her own brother. She thought he must have still some cotton on his brain. Because they lived, when they were growing up, in Waxahachie, Texas. Bessie was number 10 of her parents' 13 children. They walked four miles, she did when she started at six years old, to the schoolhouse. But in that part of the 
country. The end of August, the early part of September, when children are returning to schools in places all around the country at that time, children in Waxahachie, particularly poor children, poor African-American children were expected to go out into the cotton fields with their parents. That was the time when that cotton was bursting into full bloom. So Bessie and her siblings and her parents picked cotton. But Bessie was a really smart kid. She was an excellent reader, learned how to read early, was really good at doing numbers and math, and she knew even as a little kid that this was not something she wanted to do for the rest of her life. Now, sometimes school didn't open until December, until all of the cotton was picked, and the more your family picked, of course, the more money you got. But in this time, even though we were way past enslavement, there were still people who hadn't really had an education. They were not literate. They hadn't learned to read. They hadn't learned to calculate. And the story is that Bessie would stand behind the foreman and watch him add up the numbers after he weighed everything. And she was the one to make sure he didn't cheat her family. Well, as she got older, she decided she would take on some other work so she could earn some money so she can find her way out of Waxahachie. So she started taking in laundry. Now, I don't mean that she sat in a laundromat and watched TV while the clothes were spinning in the dryer and in the washer. Back in the day, you had to wash that stuff by hand. You put it in boiling what you use lye soap. That lye soap was so hard on your hands, your, hand, your skin on your hands would crack and bleed. Then you would put them in boiling water. You'd use a long stiff stick to lift those things in, and once they cooled off, you wrung them out with your hands. Then you put them back in that boiling water, take them out once again, wring them out with your hands, and then you took a heavy iron and pressed those things and then folded them. Bessie, Bessie had a lineup of customers, and she would walk to their houses wherever they were, miles away, come back to her own home. She got her sisters to help her with this business, they would carry everything in bundles and walk all the way back to deliver the laundry. She earned enough money to go to a school in Oklahoma that had been set up for African-American students. Her school only went to eighth grade. When she got there, she realized at 18 years old, she was only at about a sixth grade academic level. But she worked and worked and absorbed everything they had to offer and by the end of a single semester, she had just about caught up, but she had also run out of money. So she ended up having to go back to Waxahachie to that three-room schoolhouse. Now, about that time, her older brothers had left Waxahachie, and her oldest one had gone up to Chicago. So once again, she worked, so she had enough money. She didn't want her brothers to pay for anything, and she got herself a ticket and went up to Chicago. It was nothing like Waxahachie. Paved sidewalks and streets and tall buildings, stores on every corner and, and businesses where music was coming out. It was hustling and bustling and she felt this was the place where she really wanted to be. So she went to beauty school so that she could do some work so her brothers were not supporting her totally. And that's when she got the job in the barber shop and her brothers kind of nah, 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 kicked in and got under her skin. And it was then that she decided she was going to do something that would completely blow his mind. Now, she always read the Chicago Defender, which is the largest, oldest African-American newspaper in the country. And there were always stories from what was going on during the war at that time and often stories about aviators. So she decided that this was what she wanted to do, especially the things that her brother said about the women in France. So she went to uh, a flight school 
and the door was practically slammed in her face. Don't teach coloreds. Don't teach women. Didn't deter her. She found another one, went to that school, same thing. Door slammed in her face pretty much. Don't teach colored. Don't teach women. She tried to find just one individual pilot who would do it and was not successful at that either. So a new idea popped in her head that she would go to the Chicago Defender and talk to the publisher since she had all of these stories about aviators and thought he might have some connections for her so that she might be able to learn how to fly. And what he told her was that, unfortunately, if you want to learn how to fly, you're going to have to go to France. So in order for her to learn how to fly, she would have to leave the country of her birth. So she worked even harder. She got a job as a manager in a restaurant. She took French courses. Uh, and on a November day in 1920, with some money from Robert Abbott and the money that she had saved up, she boarded a ship and sailed off of American shores over to Europe. She landed and approached the largest aeronautical, international aeronautical school in France, wondering whether or not they would accept her as a student. And they did. She was just the kind of student that they loved. She was eager. She was intelligent. This was something she really wanted to do. She found a flat about six miles from the school. But if she could walk four miles to school at six years old, walking six miles to the school was a piece of cake. She learned all the parts of the plane, the stick, the rudder, the propeller, all of that in English and in French, and was a very good student, soaked up everything they had. Now, just like here in America, they were often using in flight schools old planes. Some of them had been old military issue, and in one instance, a plane went down at the school, and both the instructor and the student did not survive. But even that didn't deter Bessie. She continued, and on June 15th, 1921, Bessie Coleman earned her international pilot's license. She became the first American, black, white, male, female, first American to earn an international pilot's license. Amelia, Amelia Earhart was American number 16. She became the first. So all of those schools here in America, all of those pilots here were able to fly domestically over American soil. Girlfriend could fly just about anywhere in the world she wanted to fly. <laughs> she came back on that ship, and she was in every African-American newspaper across the country. Now, at that time, there was not any commercial air flight, so pilots had to have additional jobs in order to have money to support their families and themselves. So Bessie decided that she would start doing air shows. She didn't really want to do anything else but fly. So she worked enough to get herself enough money to get back over to Europe. She went to a school in Holland, a school in Germany, and a school in France. Girlfriend learned how to do stunts. You, you do barrel rolls, loop-de-loops, figure eights, all of this stuff came back. Stepped off that ship. Girlfriend had an aviator outfit. She had the three-quarter length leather jacket. She had the boots up to the knee. Girlfriend had the head kit. She was bad. She did her first air show over an airfield in Long Island and drew hundreds and hundreds of people. Her reputation started to spread. She did an air show in Florida where they had over a thousand people. People started calling her Brave Bess. People started calling her Queen Bess, Lord of the Skies. 
Now, most people were using, pilots at their time were using used planes. They simply didn't have enough money to buy a plane. So she would rent planes. And in one instance, she approached one of her sisters because she wanted to add a little flair to the air show and talked her sister into jumping out of the plane. Now, this wasn't exactly what her sister had in mind. But she decided as she looked at all that Bessie had done and accomplished that she would do this for her. So she got her sister to parachute out of planes, as another part of it. She was flying uh, Jenny biplanes with a double wing on them, two seats. And on one occasion, one of these used planes had an engine stall, and she did as much as she could to control it, but it crashed. And Bessie was in a hospital for three months and wasn't able to fly for another year. Also at that time, she started being invited to come and talk at churches and at schools and for a lot of social and civic organizations in the black community. She wanted to encourage people and let them know that both the sky was both literally and figuratively the limit. And that was no limit to their skill and their ability and their desire. And she decided she wanted eventually to open up a school where she would teach anybody who came. No one would be turned away from any school that Bessie Coleman ran. But she continued to do air shows. In one instance in Texas, there was going to be an air show where she was going to be featured. And they decided that uh, African Americans would have to come in one gate and stand in one section and whites would come in another. And she decided that she simply would not do the show. But they thought calculating all the money they was going to lose by not having a show after having advertised it and everyone came in the same gate. Bessie always stood up for what she believed. Well, she started really working on trying to get enough money to get her own plane, to do her own air shows. And as she was able to accumulate that money, it got to a place where she started thinking that maybe doing stunts was not something she really wanted to focus on, but really opening up her school. She finally earned enough money to afford an old plane, and a mechanic by the name of William Wills flew the plane from Texas to Florida. He had to land the plane three times to repair it. And some of those planes, as some of them were flying, the pontoons would fall off the bottom of them or they'd lose a wing. Uh, so you really took your chances when you rented those planes. And even the ones that you bought, because a lot of them were used. So William Mills had to land this plane three times to repair it uh, in order to get it to her. So at this point, <clears throat> Bessie's sister had decided that she had had enough of jumping out of airplanes and decided that she didn't want to do this anymore. So Bessie decided that she would do it herself. And she had done it a couple of times before she convinced her sister to do it so that she could spend her time in the cockpit doing loop-de-loops and barrel rolls. So she had William Wills take her up in the plane. She was sitting in the uh, back seat. He was in the front piloting the plane. Bessie was only, as far as we know, about 5'3", five, 5'4", five inches high. She wasn't really that tall. And she sat in the back of the plane. He took the plane up. They went over the airfield, and she went to survey the area where she might want to uh, jump from there. She took her harness off and leaned over so that she could look out. And at that moment, the engine stalled. The plane nosedived. 
And Bessie did not survive, nor did William Wills. 5,000 people walked past her casket. The casket was put on a train, sent to the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago, Illinois, where 10,000 more people walked by her casket. Bessie inspired thousands. Bessie helped people to see that the sky was figuratively and literally the limit. Bessie helped people to see that obstacles in your way could be overcome because she did it. She inspired thousands. Even today, annually, there is a flyover of her grave by pilots black and white. Her story, I believe, should continue to inspire us all, for all of us to know and to pass on to our children that for each one of them, the sky is the limit. I've done my work. I've sung my song. I've done some good. I've done some wrong. Now I shall go where I belong. The Lord has willed it so. Bessie Coleman, Queen of the Skies. of Bessie Coleman, told for you by Charlotte Blake Alston. And not just the story of Bessie Coleman, but the story as it touched the life of Charlotte's son, who was trying to figure out what he wanted to do in his life, right? It's always uh, inspiring to stumble upon a story of a historical figure that uh, that seems to really click with you. It's great to listen to that story, not only with you, but also with one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorancia. Alyssa, tell us what you love about that story. I mean, where do you begin, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love the story of, you know, this strong woman who had so much to overcome, but really did overcome it all, yeah. you know, and really was like the top in the world. You know, how many people can say that about anything, yeah. you know, and I, I think that's so cool. And I really love looking to the past um, for inspiration for the future. Yeah. You know, I, I know that there have been many times when I have looked in the past and I have heard of a, a woman or some other historical figure who did something great and it has given me courage or guidance in, in times of weakness. Yeah. And I think that's something everyone can take with them. Even if we don't aspire quite to the heights of the, sure. of the people <laughs> that we learn about, right? Yeah. It's still these 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 vivid examples of excellence and excellence in 
in the face of some hardship or great obstacles that can inspire us to do the things that we'll do. What a pleasure to hear that story. Again, Charlotte Blake Alston, the storyteller, and the story was recorded at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, largest storytelling festival in the West for more than 30 years now, bringing great storytelling to the stage and to the classroom and to the festival tent. A pleasure to share that story with you. Pleasure to have you with me, Alyssa. Pleasure to be here. And that wraps us up for today, an hour that has included stories from, of course, Charlotte Blake Alston, and also from Donna Ingham. She shared with us the story, Waiting for Roy, an entry in the Radio Family Journal as well, and a conversation with Anthony Bircher, the great storyteller. And, you know, if you want more Appleseed today, and you only have a few minutes, you can join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There are all kinds of things there, full hour-long episodes of the show, like the ones you enjoy here, and also Appleseed Extras, we call them, mini-episodes of the show, really. Uh, Just a single story long, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes. Minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. We've got one for you there today called Chili's Con Cafe by the storyteller Rick Huddle, a story about learning another language. There's a story waiting for you at byuradio.org, or of course, you can Google the Appleseed podcast for something new just about every day on the show. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.